Welcome, everyone. I'm David Reardon for Integral Life, and tonight it is my distinct pleasure to be hosting our Real Yoga webinar, featuring our extraordinary teacher and friend, Sophia Diaz. I'm going to be asking Sophia to tell us everything about what went into creating the Real Yoga series. And towards the end of our time together, Sophia is going to lead us in a 20-minute body awareness practice. So you'll want to stay tuned for that. Welcome, Sophia. Thank you, David. Really, really good to be here. When we look around the Western world today, yoga in all its forms is everywhere. But it really wasn't that long ago that yoga actually came to the West. What was your original attraction to yoga? And what about it called you to set out on this lifelong path? It's amazing because I can now trace my entire life back and the fact that I was feeling an intuition and was looking for something to fill in this intuition is totally obvious to me now. And probably the first time I made a gigantic decision is really interesting of hearing the word yoga is that um, I had no exposure to it. You know, my early life is a combination of a village in Mexico and the North Shore of Lake Tahoe where I was raised, which is a very tiny place. You know, it's a tourist town. My graduating class in high school was like a hundred people and I went to kindergarten with most of them. I had entered into a relationship with a boyfriend that had moved from Santa Cruz, California, and he mentioned the word yoga. And because he mentioned the word yoga, I actually conceded to entering into relationship with him because I was on my way to India. I was saving money, met him at the restaurant I was working at to save money to go to India, which was this lifelong impulse. And so um, that was where I was aimed, focused entirely. And so I never expected to enter into a relationship with anybody because I was on my way to India. But he spoke the magic word, <laughs> yoga. But it was after I came back from India and was going to school in Santa Cruz, California, that I was living in a household of women. And they were going to this once a week yoga class taught by somebody that was like extraordinary. I couldn't go because I was working on the Thursday evening that it was held every single week. But my housemates, all of which we were, you know, I was on my way to medical school at that point. So I was taking all these prerequisites. All of us were doing just hard, hard schoolwork. So there was a lot of bitchiness in the household. <laughs> and I got to witness these women in total bliss and it lasted all the way until Wednesday. And Wednesday they were bitches again. <laughs> Thursday, they'd go to this class. So um, my introduction was a yoga class in the martial arts room of UC Santa Cruz. And I had this presumption that I knew what it was, but it utterly and completely kicked my butt because it was this physical application of your attention. And I had so much resistance to feeling what was going on in my body. Now I know that. But the results of one single class made me feel closer to a lifelong intuition. 
And the most important thing I think about Hatha yoga, which is important to say because we think that all yoga is Hatha yoga, but it's just one branch where you employ your body, the earth and the water of your embodiment to union with, which is yoga. And my application to Hatha yoga made obvious to me everything that I was avoiding and everything that I was actually all the pain that I was causing without noticing it because I would find that certain postures made me feel exactly like I felt in the most challenging moments of my life. So it became much easier to dive deep into Hatha yoga than it did to you know, deal with all of the relational, gigantic, you know, life decisions about school, family, relationship. And so that was my, my dip into it. But the whole time that I was in this class, I already felt like I, like I knew what yoga was. I was being instructed in a river is what my experience of yoga was. It's completely obvious to me that we're affected by a lot of influences in our intuitive and also embodied nature, not the intellectual nature, but the embodied nature of our bodies has signature preferences that we can't answer for having to do from, you know, developing from an embryo into this moment. There obviously is like a a prior kind of reaching way outside of any of the cultural contexts that I was born into that has been what my life has been about. And the first bell that rang, well, the first bell that rang for me was the word India. The second bell that rang for me was the word yoga. So It's so interesting to hear what initially attracted you now that you've had the luxury of looking back. When we experience someone as skilled as you are at leading us in real yoga, there's usually a story behind it about how you became a student and then trained to be a teacher. But your journey really didn't unfold like that, did it? Share with us how real yoga became a devotional practice for you. That was never, ever a choice. It was an utter and complete aversion to everything in my cellular structure. But by the time that I taught what I was given. I had already been involved in the South Indian temple arts that I would say are a wider band of what yoga is than just Hatha yoga. It involves just a huge spectrum wider of application to your consciousness and all of your activity based in kind of really detailed genius about devotion. And I was already involved in the in the South Indian temple arts pretty deeply and really into my Hatha yoga practice. Uh, it was saving my life. These were very, very privatized. And I have said this a lot in lectures and in teaching that the only thing that we hold closer to our chests, <laughs> closer to our hearts, then our sexual life is actually our real relationship to the absolute nature of things or our relationship to the divine. It's just like even closer in. 
So both of these things were so close in to my heart that I didn't tell people about them. They were mine. And in both, uh, you know, teaching lineages that I was totally immersed in and changing the course of my life from being on my way to medical school to following the inspiration of the transformation that I was feeling in my own body in especially the South Indian temple arts, I was asked, or I would say demanded, or it was kind of a blackmail, I would say, <laughs> to teach is that, you know, I was asked to teach a class, a Hatha yoga class. And then at the same time, I was asked to, uh, you know, offer a beginning level of the South Indian temple arts. And I was appalled because I knew that I had just dipped my pinky into something that was going to be a lifetime of discovery. And it was my spiritual practice and never expected to be seen giving it, never had an iota of an inclination. Now I did have an inclination to heal and to help answer some questions that I was born pondering about, you know, just what was possible in terms of a human body and the way that I saw that people were using or re relating to their bodies has always bothered me. So in terms of loving the information and wanting more people to benefit from it, that was there, but there's no way. It's like having people's regard on me was like having hot oil thrown on my skin. But both of my teachers at that point, <laughs> when I balked, at giving what I had been given in different words. They said, well, then I guess, you know, my Indian teacher, Sophie, well, I guess that I haven't given you anything. <laughs> it was a total insult. Like my relationship was over to both of these lineages if I didn't have something to offer. That was what was put before me. It was appalling and um, <laughs> I jumped in and in the very, very first offering of both of these, what is obvious to me is when you transcend yourself, meaning uh, you don't submit to your fear and a kind of a selfishness about self-preservation and you give something that has been very, very not only dear, but like is the deepest truth that you recognize, something happens. Like to me, I, I have a lot of uh, subtle vision in certain moments and domains. So I like see rooms brighten when people really connect to things. And I just saw that, that I was giving what I was given pretty exactly, but from a very love-inspired point of view, and it landed it had a beautiful effect. And it wasn't like I was, you know, like proud of it or something. I fell in love with the effect of offering what I had been given. But I have never identified with being a teacher or having it be my life's work. It's kind of like, um, slap me upside the head only because I've lived long enough to notice that it's all I've been doing, but was so busy doing what I was doing 
that a lot happened. <laughs> so that's my, I didn't have some kind of ideal, which is probably why I have a slight allergic reaction to everybody and their brother going into yoga teacher training. <laughs> because in, um, especially in what I was exposed to in the South Indian temple arts, is your desire to be a teacher is exactly what precludes you from ever being a teacher in this lifetime. <laughs> it's that egoic signature that means, no, I don't think so, you know? So, but that's, it's, you know, we, we live in a different context now. So I, I feel the beauty and the inspiration in what the entire yoga, you know, the public yoga system is now. But I realize I do have some archaic, definitions of of it and i also have a very different definition of the word teacher than you know the general population of of what that what that is but all definitions of teacher are great definitions and i think anything that helps us purify anything has been the teacher and uh, so anyway, that's my relationship to entering into this stream and it getting so full. I would have never expected it, but I'm really grateful for it. I want to go back to something you said earlier because it is such a provocative claim. You said that yoga saved your life. Can you tell us what it saved it from? Yeah, there's a, wow, there's a few different components to that is that I like, I think many people are born with an incredible feeling sensitivity and it is a body capacity or it's a liability. And I was really, really strongly affected by environments. And it was just grace that I, you know, lived in a village in Mexico and then you know, my father immigrated to the North Shore of Lake Tahoe. I was in so much physical pain the first time that I went to a big city, not Reno, Nevada, which was on the other side, tiny town. But even then, a day in Reno was enough to depress me. And certainly the drive to San Francisco, I did not recover from. Like I literally would not be able to eat <laughs> because... Certain things affected me just so strongly. And there wasn't any social or cultural answer for that kind of subtle sensitivity. Like all I saw was brutalized nature and all I felt in my body was as if I had been in a war zone, you know, from all the cars and the traffic and the machinery and the cement and, you know, thank heavens for the Pacific Ocean. And so... There is this incredible amount of sensitivity that I now know was a born disposition of a tremendous amount of sorrow. And I felt so much sorrow that it it was also what was spiritual to me, like that edge of feeling something so intensely. But it was debilitating in terms of functionality. You feel so much sorrow, it's a very fine edge into hopelessness. <laughs> and so, you know, the other, the razor's edge about sorrow is that I also felt 
a huge amount of joy and ecstasy. And again, because of my relationship to my body physically and loving to press the envelope, you know, so I was always running, always running, always riding my bike. I was always engaging, you know, to swim out into the middle of Lake Tahoe to see if I would survive was like wonderful enjoyment to me. So, and uh, Lake Tahoe is really cold. And so bringing my physicality to an edge had a bliss to it. And in that bliss, there was a tremendous amount of joy. But the fact of the matter was that to be a functional human being, you actually have to function in human around human beings and in human places. And I look back now and untying the knots in my body and in my nervous system, there was a tendency for me to blame the world for how much I felt. And the fact of the matter was that it was my limit and I was not accepting you know, reality with a small R, which is like, you're in this place and to get from point A to point B in this time, in this place, you have to, you know, drive in a car, you have to apply to schools, you have to make the money, you know, to go to school. So at all the practical levels of existence, I quite frankly, beyond sucked, like every application of myself into the world of practical dimensions, like opening a bank account brought me to tears and terrified me. So <laughs> so when I talk about it, saving my life is that I had a massive, unstoppable inspiration and the way to get from point A to point B was limited by an overwhelm of, I would say, subtle and, and psychic sensation because it's the emotional temperament of every environment to this day. Uh, you know, physically, I can like move mountains and um, I'm just, you know, unstoppable in most dimensions. But if there's a dissatisfied person that I can feel in my vicinity, <laughs> it's not okay. I either have to fix it or I'm eating it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And so that, you know, liability that is also, you know, could be a strength that now has turned into one is utterly connected to first Hatha yoga. It's like the Roto-Rooter. It's like the plumbing system that allowed me to just make the sensitivity in my nervous system functional. But a lot of it had to do with the self-understanding I got from being in the yoga asanas, you know, I would experience tremendous anger. I would experience sorrows and nothing was happening outside of me. So I found out that I was generating the very experiences that I was complaining about. And so there was nothing to do but stay in the heat and untie them. And every time that I would untie something physically in my body, the exteriors would change for me and my capacity to sustain actions that I knew that I had to take. So 
I didn't take tests in the first grade, even though I knew all the answers because I just couldn't stand the pressure and the scrutiny. I failed a lot of tests in high school on purpose because I couldn't stand the suspense and again, the judgment and the scrutiny and the time frame. <laughs> I would just hurry up and fail. And because of um, untying, you know, first through what I was carrying in my breath, I had extraordinary teachers. And so untying the unnecessary closures that I had in my breath and then applying myself to very, very intense Hatha yoga. Like the standard that I held for myself was, you know, the five to eight hour practices of my teachers. And I felt like an utter wimp because I could only sustain real yoga, meaning applying myself to my edge for about a two and a half hour practice. The results were you know, that Johnny Nash song, <laughs> I can see clearly now the rain is gone. It was like the rain of the chaos of avoidance because things were too difficult for me. And the pain that I learned to feel as more of an ecstatic sensitivity than a harrowing, debilitating overwhelm about the suffering of humanity. <laughs> so I hope that painted a little picture. And I was the worst student in all of the classes of what I have now, you know, I do carry the lineage of the Balasaraswati temple arts and have been given a, you know, given titles for the acknowledgement of my understanding of that tradition, which is kind of rare. But I was the worst student in the classes. My classmates would heave sighs and roll their eyes when I walked in the room because they wished that I weren't there because everything moved slower. And my first yoga teacher called me a squirrel because I would feel an edge in a position and I would bounce out of it with lightning speed and I would look around looking for the exit of the room. And if it hadn't been such a disturbance to everybody else in the room, because I was sensitive enough to not disturb everybody, or if it, I was close enough to a door, I would run because what I would experience in my physiology was too challenging for me to sustain and I wanted out. But I never lied about the fact that what I felt and discovered was there and it was ultimately up to me to untie the knot. As I said, it wasn't that external world that was doing that. I was doing something in my physiology that was causing the states that I thought the world was doing to me. And so, but um, yeah, and, and I... You know, I inherited like an uptightness from my Mexican heritage that is culturally from this lifetime. You know, to say sex negativity is not even close. It's like sex does not exist, even though Latinos are like baby making machines. <laughs> so <laughs> there was this disconnect in the lower half of my body. That, and, and I actually think well, now through doing so much yoga and untying the knots of a really weird construction around my knees and experiencing the emotions, 
is that I do carry, and I think we do carry, and they're finding that we do scientifically, we carry genetic information. So I carry the genetic information of the Spanish conquest of Mexico in my body. Not a pretty picture to do a forward fold into, but having been the worst at the first postures of both the South Indian temple dance and Hatha yoga, but intrigued enough and in love enough with what was on the other side, I think caused me to go deeper than most people have to because it was so challenging. But I was absolutely the bottom of the birdcage in terms of skill set, uh, capacities of both of the things that I've ended, that have ended up being my life, actually. I think we can all relate to the feeling of being overwhelmed as we open up to the greater possibilities of what life can offer. So now let's talk about your experience in India. You said you were originally drawn to go there without really knowing why. After your first visit, you come back to the United States and take up Hatha Yoga and become a skilled practitioner. But as we often say when we really think we've mastered something, God laughs. On subsequent trips to India, you get involved with the Indian temple arts tradition, and it is there that you start to get a glimpse of what real yoga is going to become for you. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I had a really strong impulse for life-revolutionizing discipleship. And I found the things that brought me to that. There's a third part of what has informed real yoga is that I did run into a realized master as well as these two traditions, which just made the, you know, the tri, the trifecta of my evolution, just like signed, sealed, and delivered. So the discipleship principle of falling in love with truth at all costs, I never expected to make a living from ever, but I could not turn away from it. And so I supported myself in every way, shape and form that I could to get back to India as, as often as I could. And so it ended up being you know, like every other year I would go to India to study and it's just not worth going to India for, you know, certainly no less than three months. So I went from between five to nine months a year, every year for what ended up being like 23, 24 years. And the apprenticeship into the temple arts was something that happened upon me and I conceded to because you are scrutinized at such an extraordinary level for anything to be given to you because of the invasion of India, the British colonization of India. So I was invited into the inner sanctum of instruction of the group of the last intact lineage directly from the temple arts that it had to go underground because of the outlawing of the temple arts by the British, but never went away. So in this cloisteredness of instruction, I was far, far, far more focused on the manifestation of the information that felt really important, not just for me but for 
just the truth that I was finding in it and never expected that, you know, post-modernity would move so quickly toward, you know, this kind of world culture that we have that's so technologically based that a lot of the artistry that has to do with embodiment would be so rare. It's just becoming like more and more rare. And as it became rare, I also saw that it was more necessary. It was even more necessary. So the, um, the entrainment in India, I already had such a deep Hatha yoga practice at that point that I'm just not easily impressed by acrobatics or flexibility or anything like that. I didn't have any interest in seeking some kind of yogi master. I had, um, you know, meditation master. Hatha yoga was obvious to me as what it was, which was a roto-rootering system for my nervous system to apply myself to a kind of a deeper devotional understanding of transmission that the temple arts were and a preservation of a beauty principle that I think is life-saving. And I think that we get it in modernity by really, really great art. But I have always felt like there's a way to actually give your understanding body to body by an incredibly skilled transmission offering that Hatha yoga is a little bit, but not totally. It's more a system of understanding. And the temple arts are big time, really deeply calculated presentation to human consciousness about transmitting something. So the shortcut, instead of a ton of practice, there is a way to be so inspired, so touched, that it moves not just the head mind, but the heart mind and the gut mind that had that, you know, science again is learning that we do have, um, you know, brain like intelligence in these parts of our body. That is what the Rasa principle is in India, that it is possible to digest a moment so completely that you are actually evolved. The principle that this flows on isn't intellectual intelligence only, and it's not just posturing of the body, but it is a transmission of love. And instead of that connoting an emotion, it's more, you know, just the radiance of total openness. And so that is the underlying, in my understanding, in my deepest understanding, That is the underlying principle of union with, which is what the word yoga is. Union with what, you know, is this absolute light principle. And the way that I witnessed it in the events that I was privy to because my teachers were just musical and postural masters, and then all of the instruction that I got about the architecture and the carvings and the murtis, the actual icon, the figures of worship in the temples, that whole panorama of 
transmission through your body and through understanding embodiment is what, you know, just parted everything for me. So the availability to cleaning up the closures in the body to be available to that is what magnetized into form, you know, I guess what people would call the style of Hatha yoga that I teach. But the reason I call that real yoga is because of the underlying union with thing. And the union with thing tends a little bit more to be left out. And so to bring in a unity principle of great, great inspiration that's really accessible, it's just you have to be guided there. And guiding toward that unity principle in the perception of the body is just what rocks, what obviously has rocked my world. And so there's, you know, talk about joy now instead of sorrow, the joy in, you know, offering something physical is huge because I also feel like it's the most important thing in our technological times and the most overlooked part of our capacities as human beings is a lot more perception is possible in the body, a lot more awareness of the genius of internal, what seems like internal and external sensation and, you know, ultimate inspiration, which is basically an inhale, you know, (laughs) there's, um, there's just so much there that all of that based on this transmission of union with and the answering of the question union with what is really the premise of the word yoga and so that's why I refer to the distinction between real yoga and then the physical art that can serve all kinds of things but doesn't necessarily have to touch on you know the deepest convictions that we might have about our beingness that's just my particular love and interest in this lifetime. (laughs) Thanks for those important distinctions between downtown yoga and real yoga. One last point of history before we actually talk about the real yoga approach. At some point, you were exposed to the writings of Ken Wilber and the integral community. Can you tell us a bit about how that happened and how it further shaped what now has become the real yoga series? So I read one book is up from Eden and then was really inspired by starting to read Eye of Spirit before I went to India in the 1980s. And I fully expected after, you know, the night, it was about nine months that I was in India, just because I guess I read these books, that I would come back and it would literally be a conversation in the New York Times and in all the major publications. I was just that positive of how useful and how much of a dialogue that it actually was and how much it not only opened out and made obvious, but just how necessary it was for our times. Now, what made me that deluded or as deluded as that is that I was in dialogue with David Data. And so the matter of factness of you know, David's genius in so many areas completely confirmed to me that this was just a dialogue that was going to happen everywhere. And the piece that I was particularly sensitized to 
is even when I read Ken's books, I had the audacity to contemplate what was missing. And it was from my particularly devotional nature, there was always a way that I was reinterpreting what he was writing into the dimension of the embodiment execution of the love principle. So coming to Boulder, Colorado, whatever circumstances, ended up meeting Ken up at the Red Hill house and and spending time just very casually for a few years. And out of that came the integral art um, meetings and or gatherings up there. And it was always the embodiment piece that now I can say that, but at the time there were just philosophical discussions Ken would ask me something and I would have the opportunity to give a demonstration of transmission, you know, body to body, you know, beauty, either through the poetry of the temple arts or through, you know, just basic yogic openness. You know, it was an intimate setting, did that. So when it came around to the integral seminar time, Ken had established to me worldwide this extraordinary map. And then there was all this excitement about landing the territory. And there was this handful of people from different traditions. And I would say that some of the best times that I have ever had in this lifetime were the integral spiritual experience. And we participated with each other from the point of view of of each other's traditions. And mine was always the, of course, embodiment part and just the ecstasy of getting Father Thomas Keating to move a little bit to the talking heads, you know, just, <laughs> just that. So what became obvious is that everybody that was involved had a gift and a desire to bring it into the territory rather than the map. And the territory that I had to offer was about the body. Now, Ken identified it as a pillar. Well, to me, if you inhabit that pillar entirely, it just lights up all the other pillars like mad. So I even had like the Wilburese or the Integralese to speak relative to how important it is to, you know, this embodiment portion. So now having lived through that wonderful experimental time, it was just so beautiful to feel the international view and participation in Ken's work. But it also made me feel how the the body portion is still underdeveloped. And that is the, you know, to this day, the languaging, there is nothing like Ken's language to make what is not obvious about subtle spiritual nature that we're all sitting in obvious. There's just nothing like what Ken has played open. So you can have deep conversations about something that you don't tend to participate in. Well, I like to use, you know, whatever part of the map to flesh out the present territory of people's embodiment. And it made me just a big cheerleader for all things integral, but in a very self-centered way, like I'm into the embodiment part and I'm also into dissecting it from here to infinity and its importance. 
And I love the, the mutuality of, of all things integral for that reason. I think for all of us that have found Ken's writings one way or another and the integral community, we can relate how it really had an influence on you. So now let's talk about how you've designed the Real Yoga series. You've used the context of sitting, standing, and walking to frame the course. You said that you wanted your students to deeply tap into their impulse to grow. From an integral development standpoint, we understand that sitting, standing, and walking is the natural trajectory of human development. And for any of us that have watched babies grow up, we have seen the miracle that is contained within each stage. I guess what you're proposing in the Real Yoga series is that we revisit these stages and become more fully embodied in each. Am I close? Well, this is perfect coming out of the the last question, too, is it's an exact product. And I realize I am also a product of integral because the choice of sitting, standing, and walking came directly out of the meeting ground of the Zen tradition that I have done just from being in the whole integral scene, many sashins just invited to, you know, just as a teacher. And so it was a conversation with my Zen friends. I think it's Dogen that said it is the testament to your realization is your capacity to sit, stand and walk. And when you hear any form of wisdom, it's not like from my tradition, but you hear any form of wisdom in the context, like in a sashin, there's a transmission to it. And I just found it so incredibly beautiful. So it was one of the lead-ins to offer what I offered and make it interesting to more people that are not necessarily feeling the movement toward their embodiment, you know, attraction to an embodiment practice. And as I contemplated it, it's kind of like you you get given something that you find is beautiful, but then to realize why it's beautiful, those three in particular have to do with an embodied realization, you know, if you sit, stand, and walk. So Hatha Yoga asanas have different flavors and the unfurling of a human nervous system into its greatest constellation of infinite awareness, beauty, givingness, you know, they're exact. And there's a portion of them that have to do with unfamiliarizing your perspective to not become, not be familiar with a perspective that comes from being in a human body. And it is directly from that non-familiarity that you get access to having developed before your identity was so full as it is now. In that relaxation into the things that you take for granted, that you developed right through, is a combination of a re-understanding of the happiness that it is to be present without any reason whatsoever. But it's also the impulse to grow. The impulse to grow takes a particular shape. And for all of us is we sit up, you know, we're these blobs. We don't even have the musculature, you know, we really don't. So the, I think the first inspiration toward moving, you know, first is just 
sensational response to being kept alive and feeling the love bubble with mother or whatever, but that's not enough. Then what? And you want to sit up. You basically find out that you can kerplunk yourself onto the lower half of your body and your spine can reach to the sky and you get a different vantage point on existence. You know, I sometimes, someday maybe I'll teach a workshop where, you know, everybody has to stay in a space where all they can do is be on their belly for longer than is comfortable. And then you take the lid off and let people sit up. You are going to marvel at like this inherent, but unwordable design that is in us just sitting up. So then to be able to enjoy sitting, obviously, is can you just sit? So I think one of the greatest refreshments as adult human beings that we can participate in is the total liberty to sit still. Nothing is going to eat us. (laughs) We have a gazillion moments a day where we can just apply ourselves and we don't. So the sitting, that's the sitting part. Then the standing is similarly, you know, when we sit up, we crawl first, you know, and then there's pressure on our knees that incite a development of the sides of your brain and your nervous system. So what an incredible design, you know, to have pressure upon your body in a way that further develops your brain. Well, that development completing itself, there is again a grown awareness where the position that you are in time and space is not sufficient anymore. And so what happens? You don't start flinging yourself horizontally, (laughs) although maybe some people do, but you don't fling yourself horizontally. Our impulse is up. You know, our impulse is up toward the crown of our head. And yogically, that's enough to just shower you in bliss. If you really felt what the top of your head is, you don't have to do a ton of yoga and tweak your kundalini to sense things from the top of your head. And it brings more trust to your body and bliss, actually. You know, it's like the lotus is there. You can feel light from the top of your head and it incites yearning. It really does because we're not just frontal beings that want, want, want and experience and are digesting, you know, beauty or difficulty. This up dimension you can't wrap your mind around, but is ever present. And so you get to stand up and it's amazing. We are bipeds. There's a reason that we're the only bipeds. I mean, and how cute is it to see a meerkat stand up for a little while? It's like belly forward. You know, basically it's not safe. (laughs) And I love that because our intelligence is designed to make us safe in order to open and be available. To me, standing points to the fact that the ultimate function of a human being is absolutely not survival. We've got that down. That's easy. It is actually radiating and participating. And there's a livingness that is in our consciousness that makes us need to take responsibility for the world because 
there is this capacity for a, an experience of being alive that has to do with, with standing and being naked and radiating and digesting, like digesting the truth of our life from the full front of our body. You look around and walk around, you know, on all fours for a while. Your belly facing the earth is soothing for a really profound reason, but we're not designed to stay limited to that. We're not designed to just look forward to eat. We're designed to look forward with the whole front of our body and to participate in life. So then, of course, you want, once you stand, really the mechanics of lifting a knee and stepping forward is mind-blowing. And, you know, I call the psoas the James Brown muscle of the body. Because once you untie all of the knots of challenge that we have with the surface tension of our body and move from our belly, you know, and move the psoas, it's why watching great performance is just so ecstatic. It's like, I feel good. Basically, moving from your navel, which takes the psoas, feels really, really good. And so to be able to refeel these simple actions, you don't forget um, real embodied moments when you've opened and you've taken a step, you don't forget them. You might cloud them over, you might not make as much use of them, but basically when you have opened instead of closed in any activity, there's a bodily memory of it and we're not stupid. It remains with you. So therefore the re-examination of all of the things, and there's some extreme positions and shifting of weight in the real yoga series on purpose because it takes relaxing your subjective awareness into your body enjoying it a little bit and then taking a step back and it's a whole different experience than thinking from your head and and stepping your leg back so the connection point of being able to stay present in your feeling feel the natural motive it is to walk forward once you're standing i mean nobody has to retell themselves to walk forward when they sit up from sleeping to go to the bathroom Nobody accidentally walks backwards to go to the bathroom, you know, <laughs> but the capacity to walk is actually a celebration. It's not just functional. And so the sitting, standing, walking, just saying those words, there's nobody that can't relate to them. There's nobody that can't marvel for a second even as to the why, which it is a koan, it's a riddle that you can answer yourself because the real yoga series are an invitation to basically brush off facets of your very personal awareness. Once one of those facets is brushed off, you're going to use it. You're going to make the discovery of whatever you know, I collapsed into the sitting, standing, walking, you're going to make sense of your, you know, your universe from an embodied perspective in a way 
that makes poetic sense, <laughs> you know? And also it's just, just so it's like, it's, yes, it is just the ordinary, but quite frankly, that's the bottom line is real yoga or union with the real is very matter of fact, but it is far more ecstatic and nourishing than we're tending to live it. So that's why, yeah, sitting, standing, walking, and you can tell that I like it tickled pink by the whole thing over and over and over again. It never gets old. There is no way that I have mastered walking. I have experienced walking relaxedly in a state of grace less times than I would like to. That's how big of a thing it is to just be this gargantuan genius in so many dimensions and just to walk from point A to point B without a single tension. I hope, you know, that's why it's also worth engaging in real yoga because like Chen Man Ching said, you know, who brought the Yang style short form of Tai Chi to the United States, it's like, why do Tai Chi? Why do real yoga? Is that by the time that you're old enough to understand or care about what life is about, you have the energy to enjoy it. And by the time that I am awake to more things than I am now, I am deeply committed to being able to express them somehow in this body until, you know, I stop breathing and give the minerals and water back to the earth. But far before that point, I think that there's a way for our mere functionality to be far more nourishing. And I think just that nourishment can relax some of the tiny bits of violence that we even have interrelationally from really not being as saturated in what feels good or the ease of being the expression that we are instead of compensating for it from some non-subjective, some objective perspective on ourselves. It's like we can't see ourselves from the outside in. We can't. And yet we base so much of what we're willing to experience in our bodies from some objective opinion of ourselves. So I said this when I taught at the Buddhist Geeks Conference. I named the title is Subjective Space, The Final Frontier. I think it's a, it's a great thing to check out, <laughs> to fill out the actual texture of sitting standing and walking to find out about the massive resource of experience that's there that is as vast as outer space and i really think that it's a it's a little bit of confusion of the guidance principle that we've all you know been saturated in which i would call insight you know, this massive masculine tendency that developed technology that I take responsibility for too, but the subjective understanding that isn't about dealing with objects is a less plumbed universe. And we are it. Why not jump in? So we've been talking for a while, and I think it might be time to give the audience a sample of a real yoga, full body awareness practice right here, right now. You ready? 
Okay. So wherever you're listening to this, uh, just see how how exactly you can adhere to this first instruction and then the rest will be obvious. You'll flow along, but freeze in whatever position you're in. And first just notice how much of you moves from your breath moving into and out of your body. So take a moment and just feel what moves. And then feel the surface of your skin and feel your body and the curves that it is pressing into the air around you or pressing into whatever you're sitting on or standing on. And just notice if there's any difference that you can feel anywhere in your body from your inhale, the suspension point if there is one, and your exhale, the suspension point if there is one. And if you've allowed my instruction to freeze, box you in a moment that you didn't choose, And if you've really stuck with it like a kid plays a game, you'll feel some discomfort or the desire to move from somewhere, or maybe you're relieved to just be told to sit. Whatever is the case, feel the joint that you are the most aware of either because you became self-conscious of the position or because your thoughts and your emotions shifted from the instant that you were in the position and now you're frozen there. And try to the best of your capacity, and this is the testament to what I refer to as real yoga is that as soon as you apply some of your awareness to your body, you desire to open your breath a bit more. I'm asking you to stay frozen and leave your breath as you found it, but some of you have already inhaled and exhaled deeply just because you were called to feel your body. Now imagine for one instant just to let the heat, the urgency, or just the awareness of the position you're in be more obvious is imagine this is the last position you would ever take. And notice if it feels good or disappointing or maybe even terrible if this was the only position you would ever take before this life is over. So now, poof, relax. Close your eyes if they're not closed. And take any position that would feel better. And... If you're standing, stay standing. If you're sitting, stay sitting. But notice the huge difference 
but even changing one joint, one area of your body. And then purposely put your attention on your hands and your feet. And initially it's a good fact to know, and eventually it's a sensation, is that the entire neurology of your body ends in your hands and your feet. Every nerve ending that touches organs, sides of connective tissue also is extending into the points in your hands and your feet. So gently move your hands and arms to a position that feels like it opens you and remind yourself that Nobody's looking. If you're in a room listening to this webinar with somebody else, hopefully their eyes are closed. So relax the self-consciousness and see if you can actually open your arms and hands into a position that opens your heart. And you'll know that you've done it because you'll either feel awkward, embarrassed, a little naked, Notice the breath that you're taking now that you're not frozen. And I'm going to magnify the sound of my breath and just see if you can participate in a breath cycle. So exhale all your breath wherever you are. Keep your body in the position you're in and you're going to start feeling the useful heat, tapas, is what it's called in Sanskrit, of holding a position. And since you decided that this position was slightly more open than the position you froze in, acknowledge that the heat is pouring through a position that's open instead of an indication that you need to change it. So go ahead and exhale all of your breath. Leave your exhale out of your body and just feel the light above your head. And don't worry if it confuses you or if you're thinking too much. Then turn your palms upward wherever you've held them and inhale and keep inhaling or keep receiving. Hold the inhale in your body, slightly tuck your chin, notice what you're feeling from holding your breath and internally say yes, even if you're getting anxious about not exhaling. Untuck your chin, softly, slowly exhale. Gently lower your hands down, place them anywhere that feels good and notice the re-sculpturing of your position and your disposition. Feel back to the position you froze in and notice if this feels better and if it's awkward to you, you'll feel awkwardness and it's a kind of heat. Follow wherever you feel awkward and see if you can untie the riddle of the difference between thinking and feeling.
And what helps you do this is following a breath, a lot like some of the introductions to Buddhist meditation, follow a breath as if it's a waterfall over your face. Inhale, pass that inhale over your throat, over your heart. Very important. Can you feel what you feel in your heart? over your solar plexus, into your belly, feel your belly like an inkwell, and then exhale and visualize or draw a line up your spine. Exhale, 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 exhale. The next time you inhale, follow your inhale to where you feel anything. And again, even feel the origin of your thoughts from the inside out or where your thoughts feel like they're hovering from. And then feel them from your heart. Relax your breath completely. Wherever your palms are, turn your palms upward. Wiggle your toes if you're in a sitting position. Relax your toes and notice the pressure of body part against body part. If you're in a standing position or if your feet are on the floor, relax the wiggling of your toes down into the earth. Plant your right palm on your belly and feel your belly and feel your hand from your belly. And then feel your hand upon your belly. Take an inhale into your heart area and actually give from your heart into your palm, into your belly. And notice again, if it embarrasses you, you're not usually called to this exacting motion, this exacting awareness. It's not make-believe. It's actually very real. Just notice what you feel about it. And then receive the current of energy, of light, of aliveness. Your hand on your belly is much different than if a mannequin's hand were on your belly, than if you were pressing against a piece of furniture. Feel that livingness and receive it. And again, notice what you feel. If it's been a hard day, you might feel a little awkwardness in your heart. If it's been a wonderful day, and you're in like, if not love, it'll feel good. Take a nice deep breath and press into your feet. If you're sitting, if you're standing, imprint your feet. Slowly raise your palms to the space right in front of your heart, known as a namaste. It's technically, it's called Anjali Mudra. Anjali is a reference to the spark in your heart, a flame, a singular flame. Bringing the sides of your body together actually just allows you some presence. And because your hands are in front of your heart, it allows some feeling presence. So now add to the position you're in through any familiarity or awkwardness, either gratitude, honor, 
And on an exhale, round your chin toward your chest, slightly round your spine. And notice that exhales release. They let go and let go of something as you round your spine, anything. You can let go of a thought. You can let go of a feeling. You can just let go of your breath as if it's emptying out of you, out of your nose, out of the top of your head. Then go ahead and inhale, open the front of your body, extend your arms out to the side, palms facing forward, brighten your hands, drop your shoulder blades, open your eyes softly, half open, half closed eyes, and see the color of light in between you and the first object you see and magnify your awareness of the light instead of the object. Inhale that light, the color of light, and trust that you can discriminate a color. Notice there's no right or wrong. Inhale, inhale, inhale. As you exhale, extend your middle finger like you're trying to touch the walls to either side. Next inhale, lift your chest, turn your palms upward, open your eyes nice and bright. Notice everything that feels warm, intense, Feel the good, the bad, and the ugly. Acknowledge that there's no way to hurt yourself in this position and gently melt out of it into something that's more comfortable. Relax your palms upward either on your legs or you can cup your left palm underneath your right just in front of your belly. Beautiful round shape. Or you can just turn your palms up and rest them on your lap and close your eyes and just marvel at the why of any part of your experience. Are you having thoughts? Are you conscious or self-conscious? What feels really good? And even if this was a really bad moment, that is both the results and the aim of real yoga is you're always capable of feeling the best part of your experience. Find and feel any effects of the tiny bit of breath, movement, awareness, inclusion of the energy and awareness that you are as a body, not just a personality, not just a functional intelligence, but a feeling intelligence. And then gently turn your palms over. And speaking of feeling intelligence, planting your palms on your own legs. If you're standing, fold yourself over enough to wrap your palms around your knees. Relax your spine over. And use this as any stretch that feels good to you. So you can round further. If you find the release in the back of your neck or spine feels really good. If it feels good to have your palms on your knees, put a little more pressure there. If you've ever or recently injured your knees because your thumbs are close to the sides of your knees, there's a transparency to bringing energy into your knees by pressing your thumb into the sides of your knees. Take a huge inhale and see if you're willing to add receiving, being receptive, like you're opening to a hug. Add it to your inhale. 
Let go of something on your exhale. Unfurl the front of your body. Open your belly, your solar plexus, your chest. Let your shoulder blades drip down your back and imagine your shoulder blades dripping down toward your kidneys. And we live in a time that is a huge stress to our kidneys and adrenals. I think it's obvious to everybody. Actually feel your shoulder blades drip down toward your kidneys and inhale into your kidneys, the seat of yin, the seat of wateriness, the seat of a tremendous amount of tenderization, feeling the filtration of toxins from your body through water. And then gently relax the breath as if your kidneys are breathing. Notice what you're thinking and feeling. And you can gently open your eyes and again feel back to when you were listening to the webinar. See if you can feel and locate more awareness that literally is your body than when you were just listening. See if you can locate any refreshedness or possibly any heat. If you have carried a lot of unresolved moments of your life in the response pattern of your connective tissue, your muscles, the sensitivity of the front of your body, moving your body results in a kind of heat of awkwardness, like you're at the tip of an iceberg of agitation. And all of that is totally fine because you're aware of it you can change it. So here's the secret is feel anything that you're noticing from your heart. And feel what you're noticing as if you're feeling a young child or anything that draws from you an innocence instead of the guarded discrimination that causes our heart to be slightly behind our awareness. One breath, you can actually let go of a tremendous amount of any limitation. The secret is being aware of it. So anything that feels limited, your tiredness, your thinking, any sensation in your body, Inhale, inhale, inhale. Feel the part of your body or the part of your awareness. Inhale, inhale, inhale. And as you exhale, just relax, but a nice slow exhale. Exhale slowly, even through any anxiety of breathing quicker or needing to breathe quicker. And then with your eyes open, Rebring your hands to a namaste, which is just a centering. It's a sensation more than it is a symbolic posture that you have to do something with or feel the meaning of. Find the part of you that really worked 
to bring yourself to this moment. And I mean, everything that it took to get the real yoga series to even be considering this every minute of your job, every relational moment that it took for you to carve out the time and the space to be here right now, everything that you did with all the technology we have at our access to sit up, set up and sit up to listen to this right now. And you should start feeling slightly victorious. (laughs) It's a lot. It's a lot that you've succeeded at. And particularly notice the impulse underneath all of it to either grow or answer for your curiosity. Breathe right into wherever you can find that, your impulse, and offer a last bow to that. And again, notice what you feel about that. Let go of awkwardness as you exhale. It's a big fat yes. I done good. Maybe a little embarrassed about how victorious and successful you are. Gently unfold. Relax your hands anywhere you feel like it. Shimmy, shake, wiggle anything that feels good. And just notice what you tapped into about your nature. What's good, what's not so good, but you did. And it took nothing. You tapped in. Are you feeling more or less than a few minutes ago? Are you feeling more pleasure, more awkwardness? Are you feeling answered or have you stirred the mud and now there's more questions? Whatever it is you're feeling, see if you can emanate your body into it. And that's the koan I'll leave you with. If it makes no sense, try out a little bit of the real yoga series and then at the end, see if emanating your experience is a little more obvious. Emanate whatever your experience is right now through your whole body. Thank you for the privilege of being connected in this way. Thank you, Sophia. That was really beautiful. I almost want to leave it there, but there is one more question that we have gotten from the audience that I thought might be worth exploring. The Real Yoga series is over seven hours of video practice. That would seem on the face of it a daunting task to complete. But as you've reminded us, the journey here is to pick particular practices that get you to your edge of discovery. And if that is all you do, whether you ever complete all seven hours, you will have received the deep value of the real yoga teaching. Can you say a little bit more about that? You know, I look at at any good in-depth guidance at my access as a journey, you know, as a journey. And I have this endless uh, availability that I always presume that the guidance is good and the journey is good. And I let it prove me wrong by being available. (laughs) So what I would suggest relative to the seven hours is to feel what is engaging to your unique character of having all of that at your access. And, you know, because of technology, you can like fast forward, you can, and you can find 
what you're interested in and then see if you're interested in engaging. Now, what's going to happen is that you're going to be missing some pieces unless you start at the beginning, of course. You know, like reading a book, I read books from, you know, the notes, the dedication. I even read, you know, the publisher and the publishing date. And I'm a continuity maniac. It's like I will not watch a movie that has passed, you know, two seconds from the beginning. I'll have it rewound so I can really take it in. So you don't have to do that but notice what you need from any point that you put it on and are attracted to. So the bottom line is, is I would say attraction is like, trust your attraction, trust your intrigue, uh, follow along. And if you find yourself not in a groove, go backward until you find the groove. And the groove that I'm talking about is I'm hoping that there's enough extended towards you that breaks that fourth wall, that there is a mutuality, that you're not objectifying the information, putting it on your body and looking toward results. The results should be between us as you're going through the whole thing. And I'm hoping that like, you know, the caves <laughs> in like these crystal caves in Mexico, the ones called Lechuguita, that there's this cave of awareness that you start discovering something that really serves you. It's not just the end result of putting yourself through a workout, but it's the way that you're wielding your energy and your awareness that starts to be a groove that you do feel results afterwards, but I would hope that you can feel that groove while you're going through it. And, you know, again, if it, the daunting quality of it of that long of a series is no, you can jump in at any point and you can follow. The only rules that I would give to that is that when you get to the walking part and, um, and actually it's a little bit in the sitting part, there are asymmetrical asanas, which means you do one side and then you do the other. Always make sure that you do both sides because one side of your sacrum being more open than the other then, you know, you're walking down the stairs and your body compensates and your back hurts. So then the other thing that's really important is that when you are being guided through something, you don't always have a great sense of your spine being straight. And so it's actually good so that you don't strain anything to um, lean against a wall with a little bit of a of a pillow behind your, your lumbar spine. So you have a lumbar curve and you get a sense, a tactile sense of a straight spine. That's really good for you to do just to, to attend to the fact that if you're called to a forward fold with a straight spine, we don't know initially without a lot of internal conducting of your breath and your awareness in um, yoga postures that lengthen your spine, it takes a while to become aware of what a straight spine is. So if you do some of these positions with your spine in a contracted position, you don't want to strain anything. And that's the only thing that I would say is like, just um, be aware of the limits of your particular spine and then participate at the lightest level possible that you're certain about your participation. 
So again, your breath, your awareness, and the placement of your body, and then use the extra attention that you have to presence your experience. And that's the biggest part that's tricky about having a visual cue of instruction is that you really need to presence your awareness. And then following that is the acknowledgement of any fruits for you immediately after you do anything. Even if you just did one posture, one gaze, participated with your body for five seconds and then turned it off is take an instant to acknowledge any difference from when you started. And what that does is it starts to grow a kinesthetic discrimination about what does feel good. Because fundamentally, I think real yoga and anything that incites any permanent growth is a trick into the better parts of your nature. But if you don't acknowledge them, it's like they don't exist. And so we're talking about a huge amount of awareness that's already there in you and a huge amount of healing force that you can actually move through your body. But until you acknowledge the openness, not just what is challenging, um, it can be invisible to you. And just, I'd say let it be a tango with your character. If you intuit something as you look at the Real Yoga series, I'll, I'll bet you that your intuition is accurate then for you to feel um, what are the steps that your body mind is taking toward that by making use of it and just just acknowledge that you're taking steps toward it or steps away from it and that was my first yoga asana was i just never lied to myself about avoiding doing what was good for me. And I avoided it like a, like the plague. I mean, I would, I would clean the grout in my bathroom instead of do an asana series because I knew that I was attracted to it <laughs> and that I intuited it was going to touch something that I needed touched, but I wasn't ready, but I, at least I kept it in my awareness. So that would be my, you know, my sense of it that I know what it is. It's like you have something in your possession that is completely relational, even though it seems like it's stuck in space and time. And there's a lot of layers of your own being that it takes unfurling to relate to the series is be interested and treat it like a relationship, being related to something, a more livingness between you and I than just doing X, Y, and Z in order to be able to write a sentence. So that that's the other way that I would approach it. And like everything, we are so sovereign in this world that you can pick and choose anything that you want to relate to. And you choosing to relate or not and being aware of it is already a body discrimination. So basically you can't lose. <laughs> so that would be my um, thing. And, and then, you know, I do welcome questions from practicing because we really, we really are a universe and a cosmos. And the way you're going to experience the unfurling of your nervous system and your body is unique. 
And so once you get into a space of being a little bit more participatory, there's a different conversation that it's not about information anymore. It's about experience and what it takes for you to either highlight or resolve your personal experience. And I actually love that. To me, it feels like having, you know, my first box of 64 Crayola crayons and a blank sheet of construction paper. <laughs> so um, yeah, just pick whatever colors uh, attract you if you want to fast forward through it, if it's been challenging to start from the beginning. And um, you can always go backward from any point as well as forward because that's the other thing about real yoga. It has nothing to do or it does have something to do, but it has less to do with what you're doing than how you are doing everything. And the how of real yoga results in bliss, really. It's not that far away or that lofty, just the tiniest smattering of feeling better because you loosened some of the light that is your body. Um, can go a really long way. So it doesn't take some culminative completion or massive understanding. It's just the droplets of your presence engaging your whole body, not just your meditative capacity. So as uh, Morpheus said in The Matrix, welcome to the land of the real. <laughs> But he was looking at this broken environment. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised by the land of the real of your impeccably immaculate, enlightened body. Thank you so much, Sophia, for taking us on this journey into real yoga. I know this is not going to surprise you, but you're already getting rave reviews from the people who have already purchased the course. And so we're hoping that many more in the audience tonight will take advantage of this extremely beautiful offering. Mm, you're so welcome. Oh my gosh. Thank you for the invitation. And, you know, the invitation to this kind of intimacy, it really is, you know, to practice together. And I do feel that it is all of us practicing together. There really is a morphogenetic field. And I really deeply welcome people's experiences and questions because this is a modality that I purposely have avoided for a really long time because um, of transmission, but because of the context that David you set, and because of the love, my love of the whole integral community and the lit upness of people's awareness, it feels like the the beginning of a conversation in this modality, and so I would just love you know, any contact feedback on it and any questions that come from it because it is, um, yeah, like I said earlier, it's much more a relationship to a domain than it is just a taking of something and executing it and getting to another point in time. And I'm, I'm really, really happy. I feel very, very honored and blessed to have had this context to dabble in the whole transmission field with you and everybody. 
Thank you, and we look forward to much more exploration with you and the audience as we all unfold into the Real Yoga series. Mm, Thank you. Good night, everyone. This is David Reardon for Integral Life.